Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to J3 University Podcast. With me is Luke Miller. Luke, how you doing? What's up, guys? Good to see y'all. All right. So today we wanted to run a, a recap, just kind of hypertrophy training variable application. So we've had a few speakers on and we've gone through different aspects of programming for hypertrophy, starting from the very beginning of assessing you know, movement dysfunction, mobility patterns, and then getting into why we should be programming exercises around those patterns managing training uh, stimulus and also fatigue throughout the session and, and what that means in, in auto, for auto-regulation and also tying it all together session to session and how we string together those productive sessions and ultimately leading to progress in the gym, hypertrophy, and, and strength gain. So for, for this podcast today, what we wanted to do was just kind of take all these things that we've talked about from the, the different speakers and apply it in an application use of our examples to give you a little bit clearer picture of what that might look like. Cause I know on some of these, we kind of talked a little bit abstract um, and went in depth on some of the science behind it. And I think you can easily lead with like, well, what do I do with that? So yep. maybe from, from the very beginning, uh, we can take it before we even get into a training session. Um, looking at, you know, what I think, I think I'm still addressing the mobility dysfunction areas is probably the first thing to look at for hypertrophy programming. Maybe you take it a different way, Luke. I mean, what's, what is your, your, your first things that we should be looking at here? Yeah. I think when it comes to applying, assessing mobility, stability, and strength or, or whatever portion of that concept you want to look at for yourself, a lot of it's going to be come down to like where you find limitations within the base movement patterns. So whatever that may be, for your pressing, your base movement patterns for hinging and squatting, and then taking that information and, and starting to apply it to what we do prior to a session, um, as far as prepping for that session and things along those lines. So like the prime example here is like the, the person who lacks ankle mobility and hip mobility within squatting patterns, looking to prep for the session with things that are going to address that going into the session. And I think what may be good here is like, I know you've been working on prepping a lot for like pressing patterns, including like dumbbell pressing patterns within your program to address some like possible serratus stability issues. If I don't, yeah. if I remember correctly. So let's walk through like the pressing for you. And then I think like I could, it'd be smart for me to walk through like some of the lower body stuff I'm doing because that has changed every week as my capacity has increased um, yeah. from, from the injury. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of clients that come to me, or you just you know, you're being a listener, you have some type of problem you're trying to solve. Whether it's just like this movement doesn't work for me, or I have a weak body part. That's usually the the thing I'm seeing. Like they come to me and they're like, I'm trying to bring up, whatever chest or whatever that may be, and so there's some issue there. And as part of it, we have the training aspect of what we're actually doing. But another part of it, like we're saying, could actually be you have a problem with mobility or stability within in these movement patterns. So that's what we're kind of looking at first to address. Like, can you even do the movements and have good stability? So 
for, for me, like what I was experiencing, which made me kind of step outside of just let me avoid every exercise that's hurting me was in, in my pressing movements. And this was especially doing more um, decline pressing angles, like a, a dip or even like the hammer strength wide chest press, which kind of presses at that decline angle. I was uh, getting into these like recurrent like pec minor injuries and also coracobrachialis um, injuries. And basically those muscle groups have some function in, uh, in, in shoulder abduction. And they were compensating for what my serratus should have been doing and also for what my rotator cuff should have been doing. So these muscle groups were weak and couldn't stabilize the scapula. So I had other muscles that were getting overworked to accomplish that job. That's not how the shoulder, shoulder girdle was supposed to be working, which also in turn was leading to very, very poor um, pec activation and contraction. Like I just could not connect with my chest. And it's like, what's going on? You try all these things, it's just not working. Um, and, and really that was just more of the symptom. And I had this root cause that was going on. Now I had to go find a, a PT guy that was way smarter than me to do these muscle tests and say, look, you can't hold this kettlebell without shaking like a, you know, like crazy. So, um, this is, was kind of my initial start off point. So pressing bilaterally, I wasn't stable. What do you do? Well, you try to test it doing some unilateral patterns and there's all types of different functional movements that you can do to, to test these things. And when you find the one that you shake and you can barely control, that's probably the one you need to work on. So what's been my routine going into it was, was first uh, kind of like we talked with Jordan shallows going through a complete range of motion of those joints. So getting mobility first. So I'll do like shoulder circles, like the old like broomstick overhead behind the back, but I use a band because it's not, doesn't, doesn't so binding on my, my wrist. So I do these shoulder circles to get to those in ranges. So I'm able to even uh, challenge those in ranges with, with stability movement. So that's my thing first is shoulder circles, I'll do some like wrist rotations as well because the wrist is going to be moving. I'll also do some, uh, you know, pronation and supination of, of the, of the forearm and just going through elbow flexion, just moving basic things. Um, then to address the stability aspect, I was doing a, a banded external rotation, pressing into like a towel in my side and I would, I would externally rotate then, then walk laterally away. So I would build tension. And that was like, make me shake like crazy because my uh, infraspinatus was just so weak. And so that was like my initial thing to do for addressing for at least the rotator cuff. And then I was also doing, um, which, which is a really good one that I, I still, just, I just do it anyway, is a um, serratus press, which I'm laying on my stomach. Uh, my, my forearms are flat against the ground, kind of like a push-up position, but your forearms are on the ground. And then I'm just protracting my scapulas to push my chest off the ground, which that was extremely weak. And getting up to that in range, I would shake and could barely hold it for a few seconds. Um, we do so much retracting the scapulas, but we don't get in to actually pressing with, with protraction a lot. So um, th those were some, some of the main movements that I would do. <clears throat> and that's has pro progressed me. So I've gotten really good at those. Now I've progressed to doing a, um, an upright single arm overhead kettlebell press, which requires a ton of scapula stability. 
And that is what I go to now is one of the exercises that I do. And I still do my um, serratus presses. So, so I have some stability move, movements. I've been progressing those. Once I have those done, like my shoulder hole girl is warmed. All those muscles are, have been, have been given some type of activation. Then I can move into my, my um, first exercise of the day. So that's kind of me in my shoulder girl, but I mean, Luke, you can hit on what you've done for lower body, hip, knee area, what the issue was. For sure. So I have dealt with uh, patella issue at the tibial tuberosity. Um, so basically loading a stretch position is a problem. Um, and what I went through just with some basic testing, once the inflammation kind of started to subside was that the main issue is at my ankle with the ability to dorsiflex and um, a little bit at the hip specifically anterior oblique sling specifically adductor more than anything else um, so what has happened is i've slowly gone from i have things that i do to address some of those deficiencies so every session starts with um, a posterior pelvic tilt hip tuck with feet on the wall because I'm sitting in a desk all day now, which is something I, I wasn't doing like over a little bit over a year ago. Um, then I go into something for ankle mobility, which is typically a banded distraction of some sort. Um, and then I go into addressing my internal rotation deficiency, which is going to be getting that leg behind you and internally rotated while the front portion comes across. So what that looks like is kind of like uh, a world's greatest stretch with your back foot up against a pole. And then I'm moving that front foot stance across the center line of my body and leaning into it to get that psoas um, stretch or psoas major, iliopsoas stretch okay. to get into more internal rotation. So that's like my mobilization type things. Then what I'm going to do is kind of test that in action with something similar um, that's going to be part stability, part integration. Those two typically look like a hip airplane and a lunge variation. Um, so at first I couldn't even lunge without holding on to something without pain. Um, so that's slowly progressed from like a stationary split stance to like a drop stationary lunge to now a walking lunge, um, alongside the hip airplane. And then what I do is I typically do my first warm up set on my quad extension, which is my first movement right now. And then the final piece is progressing the internal stability squat pattern that's a prep movement. So that started as a counterbalance squat and has progressed from counterbalance to goblet to now front squat. I'm not doing any work sets here. This is just me learning to internally stabilize in the hole with whatever squat pattern I'm at at that current point. So when I feel comfortable with front squat, then I'll go to like a safety bar and there's no work sets done here. It's not heavy load. It's just enough load to be conscious of the ability to stabilize. And then that's typically where I wrap the prep up and I'm pretty much starting my work set after those, those front squats or whatever squat variation I'm at. So even though my, my movement patterns are externally stabilized as my primaries being pendulum and leg press now, I'm still testing myself with an internal stability before I train. Yeah. And, and I, for someone listening, I know that can get confusing. To yeah. Just listen yeah. to us describe movement patterns. And that, that's a challenging thing to, without us actually doing them. Um, you know, the takeaway here, and I think like Joe Bennett 
when we did his interview, he, he addressed it really good. Like if you don't know what to do and you're not doing anything right now, doing something is vastly better. And basically it's as simple as taking each joint through the full range of motion. That's a huge, like how, how long should this take you? Like mine doesn't take me very long. Anymore. Like it's like 10 minutes, honestly. Um, if you had these issues that are working, that's going to might take a little bit more time, but you know, anything like a set of full range of motion of like maybe 10, 10 reps of each joint is it would be huge. And then maybe you, you just look up like what's, what's a good st stabilization pattern for that joint that I could maybe challenge, like just investigate some. And, and then like, so if I'm going to be pressing, well, what's a, what's a, a pressing movement or if you're doing a squat or what's a single leg movement that you could do just to give you some idea, like how, how do you, how do you apply this? Cause I know that we're starting to talk kind of, it's almost abstract, even though we're describing exercises, it's just hard to visualize. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of lengthy in discussion, but like if you apply it and you can do it, like mine doesn't take yeah. any longer than 10 minutes. Like it may sound like a lot, but I, I go in, I know what I'm doing and then I address things as they crop up. Right. Um, and it, it may be one of those things like a test retest system for the people listening, like, Try something. If you feel better within your movements that day, then maybe that's a, a session warm up that you keep. If you don't, then let's try to test and retest something that's different, but still addresses, like you said, taking things through a full range of motion um, and possibly a stability movement itself. Yeah, I think in, I, I hear so often like someone that they'll experience pain training and then you just move to a different movement that doesn't cause pain or it's you train through the pain. And I like the, from, from a training application, I would always say like pain is a, a red flag to not do that for the day. Um, and to make some type of an adjustment, you know, of course we train around it. That's just what we do. Like I can't tell you how many times I felt something and I just moved to a different exercise and I'm okay. Um, but I want to go back and say, why did I have pain and, and figure that out? Cause something's going on there. But with this, it's like, if that movement doesn't feel smooth for the day, that's when Luke is going back to his stabilization pattern, going through that again, then going back to his compound movement to, to hit that for the day. So he's, he's getting to where those movements that were giving him issues, he's now able to do them because he's addressing the, the root cause. So we're not looking for band-aids of like, well, don't just don't do that exercise if it, if it hurts. Um, well, we want to know why though. And, and from a hypertrophy aspect, that just might not be a great exercise for, for Luke or for myself. And that's when we get into this, the next discussion of selecting exercises based on what our, our goal is and our split design and, and everything. So getting past like the whole warm up and mobility and stability approach and looking at, Hey, let's look at hypertrophy training. Now yeah. um, we're, 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 mo we're mobile. We function. How do we grow? So first, first setups. Um, uh, we 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 can look at what what you're doing right now, Luke. As far as uh, your split design and or if you want to go through your exercise setup first, I think I usually always look at split design first. First, um, yeah. it does. It suggests the movement patterns, right? Because you can't take. Um, everything for every body part and every pattern if um, the sequences the split sequence isn't set up correctly um, I actually kind of ran into this with an adjustment I made a few weeks ago we had discussed this with 
right now my training sessions are back to the first rotations ppl push pull legs the second rotation is push pull arms legs and that's a hamstring based day when i had pulled that arm day that back training was limiting my capacity to brace within the rdl pattern i'm choosing right now um, so spreading that out was a big thing for me but when it comes to exercise selection like we have to choose things that are going to allow us to output at our greatest capacity without pain um, and address the goal of the exercise. So when we're looking at session structure um, within a program, I think the biggest thing is to ask, what do we need the most? Plan those out first and then start to fill in the holes from there if we're starting to look at choosing certain exercises according to others. Because there's gonna be things to consider like how many times are you actually loading every week? How many times are you loading a certain pressing plane, things like that to limit injury buildup over time. Yeah, starting out, and if it's, I, mean, I know, I already know where I'm at because I've been doing this, but like with a, with a new client like coming in and someone's like, what split should I be on or, or what should my workouts be for the day? Uh, right away, I usually look, look at what their current plan is and what do they need so it's it's right off the bat like a needs analysis what do you need and is your program addressing that so is it overall growth well your split should be based around overall growth or have you developed well everywhere and and you've noticed slow growth somewhere should we have some type of emphasis in that and that will will structure out volume because basically split design is just how you're allocating volume over sessions and with volume, technically, this is being a, a large component of, of the, the amount of magnitude of, or the, the dosage of stimulus that we can provide. It's very pertinent to say, like, how do, how do we need to spread out volume to maximize whatever your goal is? So whether it's bringing up back or bringing up delts and chest, um, then that's why we're looking at kind of split design first. So that's when my mind first goes to the split of, how can I get someone to, maybe I need to hit chest more frequently to get more volume there or back volume down in other areas. So like for, for myself, I'll do um, a, a push, pull, have a delt and arm day, a leg day, and an off day, which sounds fairly balanced, um, but my, my leg volume is significantly reduced and I'm able through that split to be able to hit um, delts twice. I'm on prep right now, so chest is dialed back some, but what I have noticed doing it like in, in off season, if I try to bring chest volume up like more frequency, that's when I, I start occurring, running into issues. Can definitely do it with back work. Um, and so then on one of those leg days, I will rotate more of a ham focus where I will do my hip hinge. So a lot of people are doing like, their hip hinge on, a, on, on their back day for, for extra glute hamstring work. So I don't, I, on my pull day, it's all row on pulls. And then on my leg day, I will have that hip hinge just for some secondary back stimulus. Um, and I can keep my leg volume much, much lower because that's a strong point for me. So that's how I've structured my, my split to be able to allocate more volume to areas I need to, to put emphasis to and devolume areas where, where I don't. Now I'm in, I'm in prep, so volume overall has kind of been coming down. Um, but 
in off season, I, I was able to raise volume up on those days because the sessions were, were fairly short splitting them out. Um, yeah. Cause as I, I had, I had been doing like a push pull off legs off split and adding a lot of volume in the sessions got kind of long to shorten them up. I'd moved all the accessory work onto just a delt arm day. So in prep, it was nice yeah. because I could, once I started fading, I could just cut it off and just hit a session fresh. And so that was, that was a, well, that gets into like fatigue management, but at least that is like split design on, on, on my end. Yeah. Uh, but but like, like you mentioned, like once you have that layout, then we can look at, all right, we know how we want to organize volume throughout the week. And then now we, then we can organize it within one session. Yep. And, and putting priority first, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things that's interesting, I don't know exactly how you go about it, but for me, the stepwise process is like the needs analysis first. What have they been doing? Because we've seen some of the suggestive literature that what they have been doing may be important for what they're going to be progressing on now. Like, especially when it comes to volume levels, especially if like uh, proximity to failure is pretty close or matched. Um, and then what I do is I map out the base of like the split setup and the basic main compounds I'm doing. And then I start to at what you would consider possibly like MEV for each body part. And then I start adding volume where I think it needs it the most. And so starting to walk through that, what that looks like. Um, the main compounds for me is I within a rotation, I'm trying not to actually load more than twice per rotation most of the time. Um, so that may be within like a squat pattern and a hip hinge um, for, for legs. Um, and then, and my opinion, I think hip hinges should be leg based programming, but that's another discussion maybe for another day. Um, but when we're choosing these patterns, we probably want to make sure that we're addressing each function of the muscle within the movement pattern. So like when it comes to degrees of planes as well, so like a lat based pattern an upper back based pattern probably want to do that in both a vertical and horizontal plane we're looking at both like pec minor sternal pec when it comes to choosing major compounds and then all the delts of course as well um, but when it comes to sequencing them we want to make sure that the body parts that are going to be together within working and synergistically together so like the prime example you give a lot of times is incline pressing like we're not going to be able to take a front delt out of incline pressing, even if it's like a chest based incline pressing, right? There's going to be front delt stimulation. So it makes a lot of sense to put chest and shoulders and triceps together within those movement selections and give priority within the session to the one you need the most. And I think that's the thing too, is like prioritization um, and specificity should be the, the, the body part you need the most coming first within the session. And then possibly also considering training those body parts post rest day as well when possible so that that contributes to the session structure as well yeah i i go about it the same way so you've you have this this split layout and you have a of someone you have a rough idea what their volume's been at right and, yeah. and you have to interpret that for what it is like like you're saying like maybe this person does five sets but it's the easiest five sets you ever seen. So it doesn't mean I'm just going to give them six easy sets. I'm probably going to re reduce their volume and get them to train harder. 
um, probably reducing volume for, for most people because we're switching the whole routine up anyway. But with, with that, you know, being said, um, yeah, usually you have this set amount of volume, this dosage that you want to give across these muscle groups. And so you're looking for exercises that are going to be able to address this volume and be efficient, right? Because say you need 10 sets of chest and you want 10 sets of delt and 10 sets of tricep, well, we're not going to go do like 10, you know, five sets of dumbbell flies and five sets of pec deck, then you know, front raises and then, a, a, you know, a press, then all these isolation movements, like that's not efficient. Um, so you do have like, like Joe Bennett says, your meat and potato movements or your, your bread and butter movements. These are your, your compound movements and why we typically start with them because you can give a good amount of stimulus over several muscle groups and it just keeps you very, very efficient. And they're movements that are great to be progressive with and increase load and reps on versus a lot of these isolation movements. So those are how you would essentially structure this out and make sure, like you said, that it covers the function of the muscle. So if you have, you need to work the pec, um, you know, you have the clavicular and the sternal aspect. Do you have a, a flat press? Perfect. Well, you didn't hit the, like the, the, the clavicular aspect. Do you have an incline press? Okay. Pretty much knocking out most of the pec with that. Then you also have front delt that's active in both of those. So you can check off some volume there. Um, then, then, okay, what else do we need for this day? Well, um, we, we still might need that person to get more volume on triceps. So that's when we look at well, maybe a tricep compound movement. Maybe they need more delt in there. And so that's how you, we start building out this structure. Like we get the most out of these compound movements. And it's like, oh man, you know what? They need a little bit more tricep work. I didn't hit the volume target there. Then we have isolation movements that we can add in, which is give you that extra stimulus, but aren't adding extra stimulus and fatigue onto the other muscle groups that we don't want to have that that allocated to so that gives you like your, your general layout so for most structures to be really efficient it's compound movements first then isolation movements that follow based on your volume needs and then that's just within one session but there are considerations for what you're going to be doing within your split the next day yes. right so if you're running push pull legs well on your pull day if you're doing deadlifts and then you're going to go do squats the next day well there's some crossover there in, in your stimulus and your in fatigue and so that might be me the best programming choices to do so you have to consider those things uh, of where there's going to be some some overlap in stimulus and fatigue for for those exercises that you're, you're choosing and might need to rearrange your, your split accordingly yeah, and it, it's one of those things too, like it's interesting when you see people map out volume landmarks, not taking into consideration the crossover stimulus from compounds, right? I still, when I like map out volume landmarks on a split, I'll, I'll give like a, a number to that that I think is relative to the stimulus. So like incline pressing for me is still like half a set for front delts. Okay. And, I, and I still like map that out as stimulus. And one of the other things too is looking at patterns just for the main main muscle group they're trying to 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 train. The classic example here is like uh, any vertical based squat pattern being a quad dominant squat. Well, that's great, but you're gonna need your entire body to be able to 
lock the, lock the shoulder down to brace the lats to get the thoracolumbar fascia to create pressure along with the rest of the abdominal structure in order to brace so that you can output within the squat pattern. And if you're doing things to limit your capacity to do that, it's going to limit your output on that day. Now, there's always going to be crossover. You have to decide what those payoffs and what those are worth. Your, your benefit to, to detriment reward is, right? Um, and so like classic ones for me is the one you listed with the lower back before leg day. Um, I've even seen issues with people able to stay stable within pressing patterns with too much lap volume the day before, or too much back volume the day before, right? Because we have two yeah. internal rotators, both the pack and the lat as an internal rotator, we create an issue with pressing patterns um, in that case. Some people are fine with it. I'm one of those people that I can't do a lot of lap patterns before I press, um, like back-to-back -back days. So things like that and, and how it may affect you may be different how it affects them, but it's important to understand that carryover. Yeah, I've had issues with trap work going into like incline overhead work if it requires a lot of stability or even, even my current setup, because uh, I'll have my pull day, then I do like delts and arms and I'll hit traps pretty hard because that's an area of focus. Like, like today I had, I had my pole session. I start with that dumbbell prone row where yeah. I'm like laying on the incline bench and it's, it's more upper back and I do a Kelso shrug too. So my traps like get hit hard. Then the next day I'll, I'll do laterals and that's my first movement. So it's my first movement. So I am fresh for it, but still like the fatigue sets in really quick on my traps and I can easily feel like my delts don't get it because of, you know, the, the fatigue from the, the uh, doing trap work the day prior. So um, I have to be, it keeps actually keeps me really mindful that if I'm using my traps or not. But the thing here is that I'm moving from a compound move the day before, which is my like my, my big bang for the buck to an isolation movement. And so I don't see it as detrimental versus flip the other way. You know, yeah. if I had, lateral work and then that's affecting my traps which is going to affect all of my compound work um same same thing is like on the pull day i use biceps obviously and then i do arms the next day it's like well oh shit you know you're, you're gonna have some fatigue in biceps but the uh the the fatigue versus stimulus of using bicep exercises it's not that limiting and biceps recover really fast um, if you were to flip that and did biceps prior to your pull day, that, that could be problematic for like getting enough out of your back work with your biceps. So fatigue. So I think moving from like, if there's a compound movement that has some overlap in some of these small muscles that recover quick, and then you train the small ones the next day, that that's not as much of a problem, but I think it's more of a problem if it's flipped. Um, yeah. Is what I what I see. Like you go do tricep work the next day is a push day. And you're like, yeah, you're gonna be screwed, man. Unless <laughs> um, like you just really want to bring up triceps, but um. and that's important to consider, especially as we kind of get more specialized in like running higher frequencies, right? Like, um, I this off season pushed my arm and lateral delt volume pretty high, just because like body part specific. That's probably two of my lagging. And it got to the point where when I made it to arm day, the, the delt volume I would do at the start of the arm day would limit my capacity to brace for the first tricep pushdown 
because all I would feel is my delts just pumped as shit, right? And again, like this is this is probably just like isolation patterns, but part of that problem was because delts were at three times per rotation, triceps and arms were at three times per rotation. I was pretty close to the end of needing to deload within soon. So it's something that you got to decide, like, is that an issue? And I just kind of moved those lateral delts later to in the session where it didn't bother me, but I still got the volume landmark in. Um, but as we move into higher frequency, like sometimes that smaller body part training could affect the major compounds like you're discussing if they're some of the focus within the program. I had to be careful with the delt volume and chest pressing because there towards the end, my chest pressing started dropping. And as soon as I pulled the extra delt volume, it started to come back up. So it was just one of those balancing acts of trying to find how can I specialize enough to get the result I need, but not affect the major patterns that I know are the, the big rocks for progress over a long time. Yeah, and I think, you know, so it's, it's just, you have to set it up. Because I, I know the, the, the nerds out there, like, and, and I've done it, like just I'm moving sets around and exercises and I, it takes forever to start something up. Like, just run it. Just run it for a week and you'll know right away if you got to change it. And it's okay to change your program the first week because I've been stubborn and like, nope, I set my program and it's perfect and I can't change it. It's like, man, it just doesn't work out. I write something, it's all fucked up and I have to, I have to change it or I get a few weeks in. It's like, nope, this is not going to work. And, uh, and I end up changing it. Like it, it happens and that's, that's okay. But that's part of, you know, part of the being the, you have a planning aspect, but you also have like an intuitive aspect you need to use and auto regulating aspect that you, you have to use as well. And it just like, you know, moving exercises around so you can keep performance up across all of your sets. And so that's, that's a good takeaway that, you know, Luke brought up. If you're noticing like drastic performance drops offs in your other movements based just off of one you're doing first, like how could you rearrange that to make sure performance can increase throughout all your sets. And so that's why it just goes back to important of keeping your, your logbook. That's for, for one, you want to see it going up, but it's also a good diagnostic tool to look at and see maybe you're, you're leaving something on the table within your, within your programming or like, Hey, is it, am I just doing too much this session? Or maybe it was that last session that's making all my lifts drop off today. So, you know, you can think about, Oh, what, what I was I doing yesterday? It's like, Oh yeah, I did, you know, the, those rows for my, my traps and that's screwing up my side delt volume. And you're like, maybe I should reprogram this. So I think the, uh, the diagnostic tool of the logbook and auto-regulating your sessions can, can be really, really helpful. And uh, a lot of this is trying to manage fatigue. And, you know, I, that's another aspect is, you know, people driving up volume quickly with, within uh, week to week progressions. And that can kind of mask performance to where you don't, it kind of takes away that diagnostic tool. So um, I, you know, regarding volume, I've been slower to add in so I can really get a good gauge on what's working before yeah. I just make a move. And um, I, I don't, I'm still yet to be quite that I have to run a session to where I'm seeing like no progress or detriments in strength. I think you've gone, I just think that's going too far. So I've had so many, so many people where I've just kept their training productive for weeks and weeks on end. And sometimes I don't even deload and they're making progress. And, and so 
I know we have these, you know, this, maybe this volume in, you know, inverted U curve, but you don't have to be on the very end of it. You know, you, you can, you can still ride on the peak or a little bit less than peak. And that might give you like weeks of good progress, but eventually at some point you might need to run into a deload. I think you find that more often with, with people like ourselves that are getting up to more de developed muscularity where you have to drive stimulus high, or it's, it's a matter of, um, certain muscle groups take a lot of stimulus now and you're having to train other muscle groups at maintenance and then you have to deload because of that because you can just not keep up that much without accumulating fatigue and so you just kind of eventually arrive there on your on your own rather than intentionally getting there you know forcing it there which I, I, that's what I, I kind of so disagree with um, but I want to make sure you want to ensure that you are getting that stimulus and and so that's when I'll make sure there's some progression happening. If that progression is really fast and load and reps week to week, like my, my lifts are flying up. It's like, maybe I, maybe I can add a set in here and yeah. that might slow that rate of progression, which that seems to me that sound like when I first heard this, it sounded like counter counterintuitive. I think actually you said it Luke, because I'm like, well, if I'm making huge, you know, load and rep progressions, that mean I had a great stimulus and a large adaptation. Um, but it also might mean, that I'm following a strength training program yeah. because what we see in a lot of the, the, in the studies, these volume studies is that you have groups put on low volume, moderate volume, high volume, and the strength gains can be all the same across the board. Uh, it's more relative to, to loading, but the highest volume group grows the most, but still has the same amount of strength gains. So it's like, if you're just purely going off strength gains, you might, you might actually undershoot yourself. So, and, you actually might be making more strength gains potentially on that low volume tier two, right? Cause you never accumulate fatigue. Yeah. We brought that up in the first podcast. I was yeah. talking about managing a client and seeing these large load progressions being a suggestion that we could possibly handle more. And it's, it's interesting because we got into this with Cal and Joe and like the differences in managing an advanced athlete and how they were going about it and how we see it um, and the utility in both, in both manners. But I still lean towards kind of like you were saying, the slower volume additions um, and not necessarily having to see that large detriment. I will admit that last dealt volume add that um, took away from my chest performance that following those following sessions was one of those I was like, I'm doing good. I'm kind of close. Fuck it. Let me try it. And as soon as I saw it, detriment, I pulled. So it was like a week and a half thing and it came out, right? Which some may say that's not long enough to see a response. But, you know, when I see my pressing drop like that off of a, an additional delt addition, I'm going to pull it back out and see if, it, if it's time for a deload or if it's more just the additional volume I added. Um, and it's one of those things that's very auto-regulatory when we discuss it. Um, but it's probably not too far off from the base volume plan we set at the beginning. So when you pulled that set out and you repeated the training session, do you remember how many more training sessions you went before you actually had a deload? Two rotations. Two. Okay. Two rotations. So you, you got a little, cause it's only delts. So it's not like systemically you needed to deload. It was just an issue within pushing. It was just, it was just pushing. Systemic. Yeah. So, so that's, that's definitely a differentiating factor there. It's like localized just too much. Now, if you're trying to do that everywhere, right? 
So you're adding sets everywhere. Well, that's when you run into this issue where you, you, you would have localized and large systemic fatigue. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm fucked. I have to deload, right? Um, but you can catch it localized and you don't need to run a full deload. It's just auto-regulating the, the session a little bit. I would ask you this, like with, because if you've even done this for yourself, maybe it's just for clients, but if you're seeing someone with large load rep progressions, because I've, I've had this with guys that like, on even on a start of prep, like you add in PDs and the weights just flying up and reps are flying up. And I'm like, slow it down. Just add a little bit of load and take some rep progressions. And they're like, well, I added, you know, 5% load. And then I added four reps on. It's like, man, to keep, to keep the stimulus, to keep the set hard, they have to do that much more. So even their first work set, if they would have to use like an RIR of like three or something to then get their second set to then get their third set of, of this idea of adding in sets. So how do you, how do you manage that? Do you give them, Hey, your first set, you're doing this or I know you don't, <laughs> so <laughs> you don't do that. So, uh, so how do you manage that? If you're seeing like large load and rep drums, you're just like, Hey, take it and then add, but add a set in, then you might see it slow down the, the following session. I think the core question is what is the cause of the large jump load and the introduction of PEDs is probably the, 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 the cause of the large load jump. Load. Oh yeah. No, no, for sure. And, and then within that, it's like, okay, how can we make these progressions where it's harder per progression, right? We know a small load increase is a lot easier than a whole rep addition per. So I use like a, like a plus two progression scheme. So like hack squats are eight to 12, um, you don't add load until you get to 14 with that load. And so this is like forcing them to take rep progressions, even though it gets a little bit outside of the specified rep range, but it also forces them to slow the load progression down so that we're not taking it out of capacity, which is probably not keeping up with this large increase of PED introduction at the same time. And I don't think that's necessity. I don't think PED introduction necessitates a set addition. And the reason I say that is because the per set stimulus takes a large jump, which is a large jump in volume. So I'm not trying to exacerbate that with more sets. Now, is that when you might drop out a rest day or change the, the split setup? So I may bring the frequency back. That'd be probably more likely of a change than um adding sets so like let's say like a common one is when i go into a bridge with someone i know that recovery capacity is going down um we'll pull volume back but i may change them to two on one off which sets that rotation out a little bit more where the frequency is less but they can train a similar volume landmarks not too far because that frequency is allowing them more time to recover I may remove that two on one off to bring them back to three on one off with the introduction of PDs. That's about the most I'm willing to make within a volume addition because I consider a frequency increase a volume addition. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And uh, it, it can, it can be, exactly could be a pretty large one. Yeah. Um, honestly, um, I, uh, I agree. I think, cause I've, I've made the mistake of like, I've, introduce PDs even to myself I'm making huge progressions in load and reps and so fast that I just run into just 
connective tissue wear tear and get get injured and uh the low jumps should have been slower and i should have eked more out of the rep progressions so even if i got into those higher rep ranges and, and then the load it eventually would have caught up right i eventually could have handled the load but i just did too big of jumps over time and, and maybe you know you can even give some greater direction because i think people get excited too seeing load move up quick and reps move up quick and that you challenge them to to change the movement slightly to slow it down or have have some pause in there because we know like you know within these rep ranges the hypertrophy it's going to occur as long as you really get up to that hard high effort level so even if you're slowing like adding a second onto each rep it, it it's and yes, it would be time under tension, but that's not what we're going for. We're just, it would slow your load progression down, having to, to slow down your, your set. Um, and you'd still get that same endpoint of high effort level in a set. So I think that's something to really watch. Like, are you speeding your reps up too to get more load? Cause you're getting, getting pumped up. Hey, why don't we add a pause in this? We'll slow you down. It won't take anything away from your stimulus, but it's gonna save you connective tissue wise. Um, I think that could be a strategy to utilize as well. But I, I, I agree. I think the set addition should hold because you are increasing your per set stimulus vastly. And for, for many, like th that's, that's going to be plenty. Um, and you have to consider what is the true rate of someone that can grow? Like, do they need a set every time? Like, are you growing that fast? You need that much stimulus? Um, pro probably not, especially someone that's advanced. Uh, a lot of that's just getting driven neurally by, yeah. by androgens, uh, not necessarily that you're laying down that much, that much tissue then. So uh, yeah, I think, I think finding ways to make load rep progressions hard and then taking more of the rep progressions and then, but still adding load, just not large jumps. And what's not large jumps, I, I usually say 5%. Um, I yeah. think that kind of governs people well and that's usually where hey always try to add five percent on if we're making them they take the rep progressions from there yep um, i've had people that like yeah threw on like they're doing like four plates in the hammer strength they just like throw a 25 on like dude that's, <laughs> that's a that's a big load that's a big load progression yeah. um so i think one of the things too that's tough is like training for so many people is an emotional thing very like tied up in their emotions with like getting excited or getting angry or whatever it may be that gets them that adrenaline rush that dopamine hit of doing a set right and it takes them out of their objectivity of the execution of the set is which where we step in and are like hey like i'm glad you added 50 pounds to your hack squat but um it, look at this video of these hack squats three weeks ago and look at this video of this hack squat from you know, this session, which is why I ask a lot of my clients to post to Instagram, like their, their sets, because I can just literally send them their own post. And it's like, Hey man, like, this is great. I love the intensity, but well, well, yeah, I guess it is more intensity, yeah, yeah. more load. Of effort. but the effort, I love the effort, but it's not accurate. And then we, it, it's, it's tough because you're removing the emotional aspect of the training that they were so amped up about but when it comes to true progress that objectivity is where we and that i think this is funny because like you manage your own training and i manage my own training and it's like i i know that feeling of just putting the load on and saying fuck it and getting it and then <laughs> yeah. stepping away from the session and watching the video and being like yeah that was a little faster than last week 
and it's like you gotta kind of take take the good with the bad and like be objective as possible with with these progressions it's always when like you're sending me your hip pinch (laughs) (laughs) it's what's so tough man because you you know like for one and and we can speak just in generalities with like other clients like they send you something not this not talking about you now just like anything usually it's prs that i get sent to me a lot of times look at this like fuck yeah right coach and you're like you want to be like yeah but you know coaching you're just still looking like how can i critique this versus how do i reward it because that's your job you know it's like how do how can i make you better and that's what i look at first and so you're kind of like looking to tear it apart before you get the validation like yes you nailed it all you you were precise you nailed effort exactly what i want to do and you hit the pr perfect you know but you know usually you're, you're tearing stuff apart but um, and, and you don't, you, yeah, you got to reward the client, but at the same time you have to give the critique if it's got to be there. Cause that's your job, right? Eventually you're just that asshole coach that man, I can't make this guy happy no matter what. I've, oh man. I've gotten the, the nickname at destination of Mr. Optimal <laughs> because people will come up and ask me how they're doing something and like, if it's good or not. And it's like that answer that's like, yeah, it's not bad but if we want to discuss what would be a more optimal setup we would probably do it this way and so now the running joke in my friend group at destination is like is that optimal enough for you or is this <laughs> it's like constantly something like it's good but we could probably do this or we could probably do that and honestly like that's the whole reason i send you the hip hinges is because that's probably my most emotional lift behind next to hack squat but i'm not hack squatting right now so right now that is so like i I know that you're the objective eye like okay this is good like leave it here do this and progress from there or like like that was like why i added the block this past week is because it forces me to dead stop every rep um and it just makes my eccentric so much smoother um which is what we want when we're hip hinging yeah, I mean, standard, standardizing your lifts, like I, I, I do dead stops on presses and stuff just so I can stay accurate and honest with myself. I mean, I'm, I'm from an emotionally lift background. Like I, that's all the high efforts training that I did was all like, you know, DC and coming from powerlifting was, was a hard because you like go out of your mind to go attack this weight and just point A, point B, just move it, you know, get psyched. And so you, you took that into bodybuilding and I did that for years and don't get me wrong. That gets you really, that can get you really far. Um, but it can take you to a bad place as well. And you're starting to chase the wrong things. Um, and so I I've, and also this has probably been over the past year to two years where I've been able to remove a lot of that emotion and train like it's my job because it is my job now. And I have to think about staying in this as long as I can. Um, and a lot of it comes down to now thinking differently about my logbook that, you know, it's, it's, it's a diagnostic tool, not something that I want to pound in the ground every session I get into. And I, I don't need to lose my mind to do it. And I should be, I should be basing what I do off this session off how my last session went. So I know if like, okay, I did this, whatever, 600 pound leg press, I went absolutely ballistic to get this last rep. What's realistic for this session? And that's something to think about once, once you are training, because you might not be able to take it there session after session. And this has so been so true for my prep. And I, uh, it's almost like, gosh, 
it, it's hard. It's been so hard training this prep and not going in and tacking weights like I've done in the past because it makes me feel like I'm, I train like train like a pussy. You know, I leave I leave stuff on the table and it's like I don't do that. You know, and yeah. you get validated as that person that trains hard, and then you have built this identity in that, and to to tear down your identity is what you feel like you're doing, but it's just training, you know, but now I'll, I use RIR because I, I, it's a gauge for me now. And I can recall from my last session off my logbook, what I did. So I'll go into my session. I have my load. I used the rep I hit and I'll take it close to failure. That's still the thing is like, I'm not like three reps in reserve. I'm usually like one, but I note that down. Cool. I had one. Maybe that was like I completed the last hard rep on my own. Then into the next section, I can see that. Okay, I had a one RAR. I'm going to take the smallest load increase I can because I'm on prep. I'm just maintaining muscle. What's, what's the realis realism that I'm growing right now? It, it's probably low. So I can add a little bit of load on. If I feel like it's a rep match, perfect. Hey, I did my job for the day. If I, if I'm getting to that last rep, like, you know what, I'm, this is doable. I can, I'm, I'm going to have this extra one. I take one rep. If, if I could take two, I don't do it. And yeah. that's been my rule in this prep. I, I don't do it. I'll make a progression, add load. If I can add the rep on if it, then I'll stop there and I'll note it down. Then I leave something for the next session that I come into to set myself up for success and still make progression. I don't need to take all the progression in one session while I'm on prep. And because at some point fatigue will accumulate and, and that rate of progress is gonna come down to meet my ability to continue to, to meet reps. So I don't, I don't need to take it all at once. And so that's what I've done differently in this prep. And it's, it's kept training productive, predictive, um, managed fatigue very well, and uh, has, has uh, not driven me into a hole quickly. And I'm, I feel like I'm definitely holding muscle so I think uh, it's a bit of realization of how how little you can get away with. I want to say to to hold muscle. You know, it's surprising. You don't need to do yeah. as much as what you think. And I've just had these rough preps where I'm just I it just feels like suffering. You know, yeah, yeah. it doesn't need to be that way. A lot of it's been managing fatigue. But I'm so sorry, that was that was a lot lot of talking. But oh, you're good. Is that prep specific though? Not taking that second rep if it's there. That's been newer just in within this prep, you know, um, because for us, if it's accurate and you have it, you take it. My issue is when it's inaccurate second rep edition and you, and you try to take it and it's just like shit. <laughs> what I found is it's, it's, it's been rare on prep where I have that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know? And, and if we're, if I'm thinking like, Hey, I'm going to take it all in this one set. Cause I have it. Well, usually I see drop off on my other movements. Yeah, yeah. And so I have to think about not just this one set in this moment, but also for the rest of the workout. Like if I'm moving up across all, all, all sets in a work in a session, like, gosh, that's really, really good on prep. <laughs> um, yeah, you're probably doing more than even maintaining muscle. Um, yeah. so was not taking that extra rep of detriment to me in that session. I still think it, it kind of sets me up now well, your point, like in off season, I, I would argue that's, that would, that would be different because you can definitely make a rate of progress of muscle gain and strength gain. And to keep up with that adaptation, you're probably going to have to take faster progressions. 
Um, but you should, should be moving at the progression rate of kind of what phase that you're in, but also not, you know, not making it self-limiting. Like if I, for some reason had like, I took my rep, but I have four reps left. Well, yeah, I'm probably going to take some more, but then that would have me scratching my head about like, how am I like seven weeks out and I have like four reps left in me? Like, what is, what is going on? And like, yeah. Did I, did my, someone dose overdose my gear or something like, I don't know. It just, That's, it's just, you know, it's relative to where I'm at um, right. within prep right now. Well, I think that, I think that kind of gives everybody an idea of like session structure within prepping, what it may look like within a session, sequencing sessions together, progressing across that and what that may look like. Is there anything else that you would like to add when it comes to training as like an, an overall consensus? Um, well, I think, I guess, cause that's kind of getting into like managing fatigue, managing stimulus, but also managing fatigue, just yeah. session to session. And uh, maybe the overall thing is like the deload. Um, yeah. Cause we just didn't touch too much on that. Cause I, I, I do want to talk about it a little bit. Um, and there's lots of different viewpoints on, deload. on the deload and how to do the deload. And it's because there's not one right way that you have to deload. Correct. Um, as long as you set the goal of dropping the fatigue and are able to come back into progressing, you probably establish that goal, no matter how you set up. Now there could be arguments for muscle maintenance that one way may be better than another, but, um, the fatigue must be the priority. Dropping the fatigue must be a priority because if you don't do that across a deload, your deload setup failed. And uh, I think it's important, like, okay, why, like, why are you deloading? That's an important thing to know. Uh, and, and are you doing that? It's as simple as that. So don't just, because people just like, oh, well, I have to deload every six weeks. Like, why, why, why are you doing it right now? You need to understand that so you know when to do it. And like Luke is saying, it's like, well, when, fa when fatigue has accumulated and there's different areas of fatigue accumulation, and that's going to determine how long that deload is likely going to be and what you need to address within your deload. And that's why that's, it shouldn't be like a, a one size fit all deload. There's some generalities there, uh, but there's also some specifics. So if you know what type of fatigue that you are uh, generating within, within this training block. I think the generalities of deloading, just dropping overall fatigue is going to be some type of reduction in total set volume because the total number of sets is likely the most fatigue driving aspect. So usually it's, it's decreasing volume in general. Uh, you can typically maintain load and you could probably maintain high effort level as well as just a training preference for me, maybe leave one rep in the tank. It's a, it'd be as simple as that for, for my preference. I've seen people that drop way more, but it depends where you're coming from too. So if you've gone to a, a state where you're doing 20 sets and you're like strengths dropping off and you have a ton of fatigue, well, it's going to take a large deload, right? You're going to have to do a large reduction to get that same drop off. If you're coming to it from a state of fatigue where it's minor, well, you won't need to, to drop off as much. So you won't need to do it maybe as long or as much of a set reductions or as much of high effort level reductions. And that point you just made there is a supporting point for why you're doing your prep training the way you are, because within prep, we're not looking to take these long deload periods that could possibly mess up the timeline. 
so we don't drive ourselves as far into the fatigue accumulation as we may possibly do within an off season. Um, so where recovery capacity is higher um, and we can utilize things to increase recovery capacity so that that duration of a deload and prep is much shorter than it may be within an off season. And that's contextually something important too. And just classic signs of deload are gonna be like interruption of sleep patterns, you know, lack of hunger, lack of desire to go into the gym, possibly achy joints, performance from the logbook is gonna be one. Um, uh, and, and for me, that's like, it's almost a later one, I feel like. Like, I think the first thing I notice is this like- Joints, God. Joints. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that or just like brain fog, like a mental like cloudy fogginess. Yeah, I agree with that kind one. Of a, kind of a lack of motivation or ir even an irritability is what I'll notice. Um, so that, that is probably more central systemic fatigue. Yep. So that's something to recognize. So this, this overall fatigue accumulation, um, you know, if it's joints, well, that's, that's a specific localized fatigue that you're, you're and so that kind of that caters your deload, right? So if it's localized connective tissue, like, oh man, I'm, I'm beat to shit. Well, that's probably going to mean you might need to change movement patterns. You might need to decrease load, actually, maybe move to higher rep ranges um, and do the volume reduction. Um, if it is just this brain fog, sen you know, general cent centralized fatigue, that might just be decreasing uh, total set, set number. Yep. And then when you stop is when you feel better, <laughs> basically. Uh, <laughs> seven days have been what a lot of people have done. It doesn't have to be seven days. It's like, I've done four day deloads where like, damn, I feel really good now. It's like, fuck it. I'm just going to go train now. And, yeah. uh, and, and I've even, I have some people that to go put them in the gym and do even one rep shy of failure or less sets. They just rather not even train. So I just have them take a string of off days off and that usually will do it too. Um, yeah. you're, you're simply like, hypertrophy it's like about like we hear and say it's like a forgiving adaptation there's lots of ways to make that make that happen um you're simply trying to get back to optimal training that's that's all you're doing so whether that is a few days off and you feel good again then, then go back it's just as simple as that um but uh you know i think that probably covers and rounds out deloads fairly fairly well yeah. Unless you can think of something else, some other no, application. Conceptual understanding that whatever your deload setup is, it, it has to end result in you being fresh and able to train optimally again. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's making you not optimal training right now? Okay. Address that in your deload. When you're optimal again, then you start training again. It's as simple as that. Um, you might get to the end of that period and think, why did I run into that less than optimal situation? Then it might be a programming thing to change, right? Yep. Hey, all my, my pecs fell off this in my, I tore my pec off. Like, okay, well, why did that happen? Maybe you're doing inappropriate movements or maybe you have this dysfunction thing that you need to address. Like, like I've done and Luke's done. So it's, it's kind of a you know, re reworking reverse engineering your training. If you're, if you're chronically running into certain deload issues. Yeah, for um, sure. For uh, sure. I think that covers it though. Yeah, man. I think that's good. Well, let us know if there's anything I want to know more on the training side. We're always happy to talk about training. Um, but when it comes to setting up session structures, just look where your weaknesses are. If it's overall development, set it up equally. 
um, be aware of your, your markers for progress and, and, and track those and be objective in, in how well those are progressing and, and be able to take it on a week by week basis of like looking at the data and then making decisions and just testing it and rerunning it and testing it. And each time you test it, you'll get more information back on like how you respond to training and it will help guide the training blocks from there. That's, that's it. That sounds great. Um, and uh, I don't know where y'all are listening to this at, but if you're on YouTube, just like subscribe. If you're on iTunes or Spotify, hit the five star button, subscribe, get notifications. We, we, we appreciate that guys. And uh, you've, 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 if you listen to this right now, uh, J3 university has been out for a good amount of time. We get a great response on it too. So if you want more in depth, knowledge of the whys behind what you do and learn programming of nutrition, PEDs, supplements, check it out. That, that is your, your one-stop shop education platform for learning how to bodybuild physique enhancement. But until next time, we will talk to you again. Thanks guys for tuning in. J3 University podcast. Until next time.